I just finished reading a book by an author named Alan Weissman. The book is called Countdown. The subtitle is Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth? He traveled around the world to something like a dozen different places and spoke to people there and reported about population. This is a book about population and our relationship with the world. I'm going to read a few sections of it because I found this book tremendously eye-opening. I've read a lot about the environment. I've done a lot more than the average person around here. And I learned a lot. It wasn't just learning facts and figures, although there was plenty of research. It was a lot of insight and viewing places in the world where population is going up, where population is going down. Very eye-opening. I highly recommend this book. So I'm going to read about five, six, seven passages, maybe a little bit more. I'm looking at the placeholders in the book. I'm going to go roughly in order, skipping a bunch. He begins by talking about Palestine and Israel and how the different populations there, they're kind of battling it out by having more and more kids. This is a part about the Jordan River. The Jordan River is now a fetid ditch trickling from a lake whose very name evokes conflict because it has three of them, Lake Kinneret to the Jews, Lake Tiberias to the Palestinians, the Sea of Galilee to the Christians. Since it forms a part of Israel's international border with a country named for it, the Jordan's riparian basin is a restricted military area, so Palestine has no access to it. Jordan gets a share, as does Syria, which controls most some of its headwaters. Today, all but 2% of the Jordan is already allotted by the time it leaves the lake. What dribbles to the Dead Sea is runoff from fields or fish farms, sour with pesticides, fertilizer, hormones, fish wastes, and untreated sewage. Pilgrims trying to bathe at the spot where tradition says Jesus was baptized and Joshua crossed into the Holy Land would contract a rash or vomit should they swallow some of the once pure holy water. Okay, back to me now. This is an overpopulated place. Israelis have pioneered drip water techniques to conserve water, but the Jordan River, pilgrims trying to bathe at the spot where tradition says Jesus was baptized and Joshua crossed into the Holy Land would contract a rash or vomit should they swallow some of the once pure holy water. That's population. Skipping ahead a ways to a part in, I don't know how to pronounce these things, Bwindi in Uganda. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs here. Amy is a worker in, a, in an NGO. A voice calls out. Amy doesn't speak Rukiga, the local Bantu dialect, but she turns. A skinny woman who looks around 60, walking with a stick between two banana-laden companions, is hobbling toward her, smiling toothlessly, arms widespread to embrace her. The day before, Amy delivered this woman's 10th child, a daughter. Afterward, through a nurse interpreter, Amy asked if she wanted more. The woman, who was actually 30, so a paragraph before they said she looked 60, who was actually 30, had burst into tears. Lord knows, she whispered, she was HIV positive and already had suffered one stroke. I'm too weak to go through this again. Her husband, however, had other ideas. Okay, back to me again. Her husband had other ideas. All right, I didn't want this to be in the second part that I read about. A lot of people, when you talk about family planning and controlling population growth, one of the first things they say is educate women. I am all for educating women. But to presume that the husband has other ideas and just leave it at that, as far as I can tell, and I'm ignorant here, and if you know better than me, please relieve me of my ignorance. But as far as I can tell, there's more education for men than for women, but they teach women family planning, contraception. And as far as I can tell, they don't teach men family planning and men contraception 
They just take for granted that the men are that way, which to me sounds extraordinarily condescending. I could be wrong, but it sounds to me like people want to educate the women as if men are just, that's where culture comes from. Men are incorrigible. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing we can do about them. They just want kids and we must empower the women to fight back against that. Yes, empower women, teach women. Women should know, I hope women know how to use contraceptives and control how many children they have. What about men? Yes, teach them too. I don't understand why we don't say teach men contraception. Don't take for granted that they just want kids. I find that condescending. And I hope I'm ignorant and I'm missing something. But I, her husband having other ideas, teach the men. Now I'm going to skip ahead to Niger. Reading now from the book. In the West African nation of Niger, due south of Libya, Alhaji Rabo Mama, sorry about the pronunciation, Alhaji Rabo Mamane knows a lot about the Sahel, but he isn't sure how many children he has, so he reaches for his prayer beads and starts counting. Seventeen, he presently says. Mamane is the chief of Bargaja, a Sahel village of 2,000, 20 kilometers north of the border with Nigeria. He sits on a blue and green woven cotton mat under a thatched awning in front of the mud-plastered home, surrounded by the men of his village. A white goateed man of 70, he adjusts his sky-blue jalabia around his bare ankles, straightens his round-embroidered blue prayer cap, and then adds, 17 who are still alive. I've lost at least that many. The past years have been hard. In 2010, few crops in Niger made it to maturity. Millet, the staple cereal, dried and died on the stalk as the great heat came early. Same with the groundnuts. Sorghum, usually drought-tolerant, grew but produced no seed. The cattle lacked grass. Quote, so our children began to die. The World Food Program tried to lift in emergency food for five million desperate people, but Mamane still lost three. Even though as chief, he was able to send a wife to the health center run by French doctors in Maradi, the nation's capital. There she watched them die of malnutrition, one after another. She is the youngest wife. Quote, I married her when she was 12, when she was fresh. All her babies have died. One was three years. One was two. One died after just a week. In 2011, he lost two more. Two of his other wives had been nursing. Malnourished, they grew anemic and their breast milk faltered. The babies died of anemia and opportunistic malaria. Quote, my youngest wife was still so upset that I considered divorcing her to give her another chance with another man. But fortunately, she is pregnant again, end quote. A murmur of approval from the men seated around him. He doesn't have a short count of wives either. Although the Quran allows him up to four as long as he can responsibly take care of them, over the years some wives have stayed, some have left. Quote, some of them died too, end quote. One he knows has three children still living, three out of nine births. A few paragraphs later, he talks about another man in this group. Quoting from the book now. All his life, he's heard that every birth is a blessing. God provides, although God also takes away. Two years before, after he and his wives stopped working for three days to pray for the soul of the latest child to die, they made a decision. They went to the clinic in Maradi. With his consent, all three wives began taking family planning pills. Inusa, that's the guy's name, didn't try to hide it in the village, and the other men didn't hide their discomfort over what he'd done. He hasn't tried to convince them, quoting him, Their eyes can see the results. My wives were so thin, but now they've gained weight. No one has gotten pregnant for two years. It's good because having 11 is a big test of their strength. As he explains this, the other men look baffled. In Niger, every woman averages between 7 and 8, the highest human fertility rate on earth. His wives should have borne at least 21 among them, but they stopped at barely half that. Skipping ahead a few paragraphs, 
It talks about a woman there. She pulls him back to the breast, quoting her now. It is such a darkness to have and lose a child. God gives life, then takes it back. But I can't go against God's wishes because I know that God can also take my life anytime he wants, end quote. She's heard about family planning before. It doesn't interest her, quoting her. When a food crisis hits and the sweet children die, you have to keep having them while you can. If I stopped, what if the ones I already have don't survive? I'll have nothing. So this is the view there in Niger. More and more children. People ask me why I talk about population growth, and you hear about places like that. Skipping ahead to Pakistan, here's a part with a woman named Asma who works in family planning. So Asma asks the woman in family planning how many children she wants to have. The woman answers, my husband wants at least six. And you? Shyly, she raises two fingers. The other women in the room are watching. They nod. You're wise, Asma assures her, quoting her, we'll never be healthy and have enough schools if our population keeps growing. More nods. A middle-aged woman named Nazakat in a full black chador and rectangular wire-rimmed glasses appears. She's today's vaccination technician on duty, responsible for seeing that pregnant women have their tetanus and polio shots, but she won't give a contraceptive injection that asthma has prescribed. Quoting her, I don't believe that we should practice family planning. Our community should increase in number. Quote, it's not for me to question why, Nazakat continues. It's God's will. He determines destiny. She would have had as many as possible, she said, had she ever married. Yes, she knows it's a problem that kids roam the streets because there aren't enough schools. And yes, it's heartbreaking to watch women try to feed eight children. And yes, her own work is made harder by men who forbid women to take polio vaccine because they suspect it's really birth control. Quote, but every country has problems, end quote, she says. Ours is overpopulation. Okay, back to me again. Well, I guess there's nothing we can do about it then. Just have as many babies as happen. Now, skipping ahead of chapter two to Japan, a totally different story, by the way, as we're about to hear. Quoting from the book, Nevertheless, Akihiko Matsutani's book about how shrinking Japan can remain prosperous has attracted scant attention from his country's financial circles and other economists. Quote, They'd rather translate American and European books about how to generate growth. They talk about rebuilding the fishing ports destroyed in the typhoon, except that it will take up to 20 years to do that, and in 20 years, only a quarter of the fishermen will still be alive so three-fourths of the port facilities won't be necessary. Such simple discussion isn't taking place. People don't want to accept that things they know have changed. Some will say, okay, we can let more immigrant labor in, but at this point, we would need 24 million immigrants by 2030 to maintain our workforce at today's size. That won't happen. What will happen, he says, is what's already happening, not just to Japan, but to the world. Quote, world population is still growing, but agricultural output isn't. Output from the seas is shrinking. Add those two together and we get famine. He looks at the glass-fronted bookshelves, filled with copies of his book. In the animal world, when population exceeds its limits, species start reducing. Probably this is what will happen to us humans. Maybe we're lucky here in Japan because we're not waiting until the disaster reduces our population. Interesting. Oh, here, the next part. In the island city-state of Singapore, one of the world's most developed nations with the world's lowest birth rates, 1.1 child per fertile woman, August 9th is celebrated as National Day. Okay, that's interesting. A very successful place, very low population growth. Skipping ahead a few pages to more about Japan, quoting now from the book. Like China's Jiang Zhuangzhua, now charged with planning how his country will deal with his own aging populace, Akihiko Matsutani sees those savings helping to finance communal public housing, parks, and cultural facilities that seniors will need. 
He's heard the scary rhetoric in Europe about how high payroll taxes must soar to meet the pension shortfall if populations fall, and how everyone should pump out more babies lest their economies crumple beneath a mass of unproductive gray-haired retirees. In reply, Matsutani reminds people that children too can be considered a burden on society since they don't work and require their own infrastructure. Smaller populations won't need as many schools or subsidies for public and private universities. The size of the government too will shrink along with the body politic, all representing savings that can be reallocated where they're needed. Quote, It's a more peaceful society when a large part of the population is aged, observes Japanese Senator Kuniko Oniinoguchi, who is also a demographer, quoting him again, The aged won't sacrifice health care for guns. Because of the graying population in most democracies, she says, in the 21st century there's hope for us to find a geriatric peace. And with less dependence on foreign imports to sustain frenetic levels of production, a country might be less inclined to spend billions defending access to overseas resources as the United States has done at such great financial and human cost. Without resource wars, there'd be that much more available for caring for the elderly until ages come back into balance, leveling out with each passing generation to a smaller, leaner population with more breathing room to savor life. Okay, back to me again. Very interesting, a different perspective in a very successful economy. Skipping ahead to a family that lives, I guess, in the wilderness, talking about where they live. Quote, Our life here is simple. We grow our food and make our furniture. Our son's nursery school meets outdoors. But if we're not free from nuclear power, it's not enough. So since 311, oh, I should mention 311 is, refers to the Fukushima disaster. So since 311, we're heating our bathwater with firewood. Yes, it takes more time, she says, but it's also more fun. When we had a modern life in Yokohama, we would waste time. Now by putting effort into making things, it's like we're regaining time. Hi, says Oiwa. Exactly, that is the slow life. People think environmental living means being ascetic but every culture has a huge storage of fun. Sure, there's fun technology, but today we see so many sick, unhappy, empty people. Before 311, people gave thanks to nuclear power for allowing us to have our lives. But now, post 311, we realize that we all die. We who survived aren't immortal. We're in the palm of Buddha. Knowing that we die is the first wisdom of human beings, the beginning of philosophy. Every day I wake up, that is happiness. Okay, back to me again. Very interesting. It sounds like they're living a life that is happy. They recognize they can't grow forever. They're not going to live forever. That's not bad. That's, to me, the way things are, as far as I can tell. And it leads to a peaceful, happy life. Compare that with Uganda and Pakistan and Niger. Jumping ahead to Thailand, I'm going to have trouble with this person's name, but quoting from the book, quote, Foreign assistance, Machai Viravaidya, once told a visiting delegation of U.S. congressmen, is like an erection. It's nice while you have it, but it doesn't last forever. That exchange took place in 1976. At the time, Machai was in, I don't know if I'm saying the name right, was in charge of something for which his economics and commerce degree from Melbourne University had absolutely not prepared him. Upon graduation, he had taken a post with Thailand's Economic Development Agency, traveling to evaluate infrastructure projects. Until then, he knew little of his country outside Bangkok, where his parents were doctors. The job was a chance to learn about transportation, energy, irrigation, schools, and telecommunications. But as Machai's biographer, Thomas Dagnus, recounts from, in his book, From Condoms to Cabbages, wherever he went, the same thing repeatedly grabbed his attention, astonishing numbers of children. Quote, in every village I asked women how many. He recalls over coffee at the conference table he moved into the Cabbages and Condoms Bar. By the way, I have to mention, I'm pausing here for a second. Cabbages and Condoms Bar 
is this place that is full of condoms and full of, it's all about contraception and things like that. And it's this fun, irreverent place that's all about sexuality and how to prevent having too many kids. So that's why it's condoms and cabbages or cabbages and condoms. So back to the book. In every village, I asked women how many. He recalls over coffee at the conference table he moved into the cabbages and condoms bar, which is much more fun than his office upstairs. Quote, seven to ten was typical. He would look at the hordes of kids, then at mothers nursing one while pregnant with another, then at the prospectus for the project he was evaluating. Nothing added up. Quote, when I studied economics, they taught us not to worry about the number of people because we can always expand food production. No problem. Except there were plenty of problems. Machai hadn't studied demography, but he learned accounting. The numbers he ran told him that at a certain point, there wouldn't be any more places to put more rice patties. And not just food. Every child ratcheted up demand for housing, clothing, schooling, and jobs. Add things like plumbing, water purification, and health services, then multiply them by the multiplying little bodies that surrounded his government jeep in every village he visited, and he concluded that his agency's goals were futile. There was no way that Thailand could go forward with so many people. On the contrary, they were doomed to fall farther back with each new, bigger generation. What were the developmental economists possibly thinking? With his agency reports vanishing into the bureaucratic maw, Machai Viravidya began moonlighting, writing folksy newspaper columns about economics under the pseudonym GNP. They earned him another extracurricular job as a radio commentator under yet another pseudonym, as he was still working for the government. But then radio led to television. A tall and handsome former national tennis champion, Machai soon became a highly recognizable soap opera star and stage actor. But he was still an economist, and he was thinking hard about how to leverage his media skills to that end. A column he wrote in 1968, extolling family planning workers as unsung heroes of development, caught the eye of a Thai government advisor from a U.S.-based NGO, the Population Council. Their ensuing friendship led him to a position with the newly created Planned Parenthood Association of Thailand. He didn't stay long. His director proved to be squeamish when talking about sex, a bit of an occupational challenge under the circumstances. She was especially mortified by Machai's public presentations. Quote, I would start out with a box of pills, and people would just look at it. Then I'd show an IUD and get blank stares. One day, while showing a condom at a training session for school teachers, without thinking, he unwrapped its foil pouch. Immediately, people started giggling. Aha, I thought. So he unfurled it. Women shrieked. Now he definitely had their attention. Improvising, he explained that condoms were all-purpose tools that could be used as tourniquets, hairbands, wineskins. Then he did what boys ever have done, but not before an auditorium filled with 2,000 teachers. He blew it up. Now even the shriekers were laughing. Condoms were distributed, and Machai enlisted a whole room in an inflating contest with a year's free supply for the biggest balloon. Okay, the story here is that this guy started having fun going around talking about IUDs and contraception and condoms and family planning, and it spread and it took. People started treating family planning as something that you could just do, and there was no coercion. There was no one-child policy. There was no punishment if you didn't do it. And let me skip ahead a little bit to the results. So skipping ahead a bit. After Machai was named Minister of Tourism, so he he did very well for himself by doing this, resorts held Miss Condom pageants and hotel minibars were stocked with prophylactics. It became mandatory to use a condom in a Thai brothel. Because prostitution is not just a tourist attraction, but considered routine recreation by Thai men, the United Nations calculated that 7.7 million Thais were prevented from getting infected with HIV. By the new millennium, HIV infection rates in the country were down by 90%, and Thailand's fertility rate, 7.5 children per woman in 1975, had fallen to 1.5 
where it remains today. I wanted to share some of the most shocking things in the places where population is growing unchecked, the environmental degradation that you see, and how people are just resigned to it, or people just, that's God's will, and thinking, that's just men are that way, there's nothing we can do about it. I hope I'm misreading stuff, but that's the way it looks to me. Whereas in places where the population has dropped a lot, people are peaceful and happy and enjoying it. I think in this country, the U.S. is hovering around replacement level, but we're getting a lot of immigration in. And I think if that immigration were to stop, we would probably increase our population again. Everything that I see says that the Earth's population is well above what's sustainable and that in the time that you and I will be alive, if we don't lower those numbers, nature will do it for us. If we don't lower our birth rate, nature will increase our death rate. I don't want that to happen. Anyway, I don't want to go into all of that, but I just wanted to read these sections from this book. I highly recommend the book. I barely scratched the surface. You get to see what's going on all around the world, some places where population growth is high, some places where population growth is negative, and how different people are viewing it and what the challenge is for our world today. There is no environmental issue that does not get harder with bigger population and get easier with a smaller population. Population is the number one driver of all of our environmental problems. This is the issue worth understanding. Right now, we just don't talk about it. This book talks about it and gives a wide number, something like a dozen different views of different things all all around the world. It's not moralizing. It's not saying what's right or wrong or good or bad. It's just sharing it. I recommend this book, Countdown by Alan Weissman.